Well, good morning, church. Um, yeah, as Tammy said, it's um, yeah, good to be with you. And we are in the middle of a, a new series uh, at the moment called Better and Worse. And basically, we're just trying to take a, a real honest look at, um, I guess, 2,000 years of Christian history and how the church has been pretty good and then not so good at various times. Um, some of the best things, some of the worst things that Christians have done, and probably if you, if you know much about the past, you'll know that when you start to peel back the layers, you'll see that there's been some good stuff, some bad stuff, and some ugly stuff, right? Not just a wild western, but the good, the bad, and the ugly, and probably the most ugly part of Christian history has been uh, arguably the violence and the bloodshed that has happened, that has occurred under the banner of the Christian faith. So there's a guy called Christopher Hitchens, he's a, an author and a speaker and a very prominent atheist and he is very scornful of uh, religious violence, particularly when it comes to Christianity. He wrote this in a book a few years back, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children, organised religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. Well, big sentence, right? But that's certainly what he thinks. And you may or may not agree, but a lot of people in our Western society do agree with that. They look at uh, you know, events from the past and, and see that religion has kind of caused a lot of that conflict. And I suppose you only have to go back really only to the end of the last century to see how um, religion was a motivating factor for a number of, um, a number of wars. So in the 1990s, uh, if you can roll back that far, the former Yugoslavia was violently divided amongst religious groups. Or even uh, earlier than that, the 30 years uh, between the 1970s and the 1990s, Northern Ireland had the Troubles, where Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians fought a guerrilla war uh, against each other and against others. But probably the most ugliest, ugliest episode in terms of Christian conflicts is the Crusades. Right? I don't know if you know much about it, but certainly the brutality of the Crusades is a really common argument that critics have against Christianity. And, and maybe you know lots about the Crusades, maybe you know a little bit about the Crusades, but it's probably helpful to have a, a little bit of historical background. So in a nutshell, the Crusades were actually five distinct wars or distinct campaigns which started around about a thousand years ago. Uh, and over the course of two centuries, European Christians were compelled to march across Europe and to eject the majority Muslim population from the Holy Lands, which we would know now as modern-day Israel. So I'm going to show you a very quick clip just to kind of set the scene for the Crusades and, and just kind of fill in maybe any gaps that you might have. Okay. Jerusalem, home of three great religions, the so-called City of Peace. In the blistering heat of July 15, 1099, 10,000 European crusaders broke through Jerusalem's walls and fought their way up here to one of Islam's most sacred sites, 
and committed one of the great atrocities of Christian history. Thousands barricaded themselves in up here and sought refuge in the mosque. Some even climbed the roof of the mosque to escape. But the Crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women and children. Some they threw off the high walls to their deaths. The rest they butchered. The carnage apparently filled this great promenade. When the fighting was done, the pilgrims, as they like to call themselves, marched 500 metres that way to the ancient Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they held a thanksgiving service. The irony is scorching. Near this church a millennium earlier, Jesus of Nazareth had died on a Roman cross, having called his followers to love their enemies. How could they get it so wrong? How could they follow a man who loved enemies and laid down his life and then exult in the death of thousands? The um, first crusading soldiers, they had been marching and fighting for about three years. And when they broke into Jerusalem, when they burst onto that temple plaza, which you just saw images of, they really only had one thing on their minds. And so there was a guy called Raymond of Agurs, he was a, a chaplain, and he wrote this eyewitness account of the carnage. He, wrote, he writes this, Wonderful sights were to be seen. Piles of heads, hands and feet were scattered through the streets of the city. The slaughter was so great that our men waded in blood up to their ankles. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers, since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. This day will be famous through all future generations. This day marks the justification of all Christianity, the humiliation of paganism, and the renewal of our faith. Now, that bloody battle of the First Crusades is, is quite shocking to us. And I can sort of pick that by your stunned silence. But those soldiers genuinely believed that, they, that the violence that they were uh, creating was actually carrying the cause of Jesus. And if you know anything about the cause of Jesus, if you know anything about the Christian faith, you're probably scratching your head wondering, how the heck could this happen? How, did, how could the brutality of the Crusades, those, those things that were done by those people, be done by people who, who claim to follow a generous and gracious Messiah like Jesus? How could the, the butchery of the Crusades, I mean, it's such a contradiction to the lessons and the lifestyle of Jesus. How could those Crusaders get it so wrong? I think to answer that question, we need to roll back to look at the first Christians and get a glimpse of how they understood the teachings of Jesus. So as the founder and the focus of the Christian faith, Jesus taught his followers to humble themselves, to work for peace, to forgive those who sin against you, to turn the other cheek, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who hurt you, and famously, to love your enemies. And so for those first 
centuries, the first two or three centuries, the Christian church, they practiced what Jesus preached. They tried to play in tune with Jesus. And so there was a guy called Tertullian. He was an early Christian, a lawyer and an author. And and he puts it like this. He said, for our religion, that's Christianity, commands us to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Everyone loves those who love them. It is peculiar to Christians alone to love those who hate them. And so this high moral and ethical calling of Jesus meant that Christians refused to retaliate when they were wronged. They refused to seek revenge when they were injured, but instead they loved their enemies. And so I suppose if you look at the spectrum of war and violence, most of those first Christians were essentially pacifist. They would resist violence, they showed love, and they trusted God for ultimate justice. Now you've got to appreciate that this wasn't just some sort of like inspirational or even an aspirational ideal. For the first 300 years of the Christian church, Christians were periodically persecuted by Roman emperors. So 30 years after Jesus, one of the first persecutions broke out under a guy called Emperor Nero. In the year 64 AD, he blamed Christians for a devastating fire which had ripped through the city of Rome. And so thousands of Christians were captured, were tortured, and were ultimately killed. And so it's in the face of this persecution that a lot of leading Christians like Paul, James, Peter, and John, they write letters, which we have in our Bible in the New Testament, encouraging the church to hold fast to the message of Jesus. In fact, only a few years before Nero launched his persecution, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this to the Christians in Rome. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 12. He writes this, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honourable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. Now those instructions were written against a backdrop of violence and oppression. And the first Christians lived out the teachings of Jesus, not as abstract ideas, but as their real everyday life. But then the trajectory of the Christian church, church took a bit of a change in the fourth century. And just out of the blue, a Roman emperor called Constantine declared that he was a Christian. And this really turned the tables for the church. And the decades that followed, the church increased in people, increased in property, increased in power, and increased in privilege. And that brought significant challenges for the church, most, most uh, particularly in the issue of justice and of war. And so in the 5th century, the Roman, uh, emperor was being attacked, uh, the Roman Empire was being attacked on several fronts, and, and several Christian thinkers were asked to rationalize warfare from a Christian perspective. And the most persuasive of them was a man called Aurelius Augustinius, who we commonly know as Augustine. And over the course of several years, Augustine wrote a massive book called The City of God. It's got 400,000 words in it if you want to spend some time counting them. And in his very large book, he argued that the world that we live in is not in an ideal state, that there is evil and there is sin that needs to be opposed. And so... 
military force can be used under strict criteria. Now, I'm not going to... Um, oh, this, this became known as the just war theory. Now, I'm not going to uh, give you a whole bunch of pages from Augustine's book, but I'm going to give you a summary by an American scholar who kind of outlines the criteria that Augustine said needed to happen. So this is what he said, the just war. The just war is to be fought under the authority of the state and is to limit its goals to the restoration of justice or the preservation of peace. In order to be just... The just war must be a last resort, entered into only after all methods of solving disputes non-violently have been exhausted. Further, the just war must be fought justly, that is, with special care taken to protect non-combatants and with the level of violence strictly limited to the minimum necessary to accomplish the goal of justice, that is, the restoration of peace or the preservation of justice. All right, you probably picked all that criteria, did you? <laughs> Okay, so for a war to be just, I'm going to help you, I'm going to highlight them. Augustine argued that it had to be sanctioned by responsible authorities, normally the state or the government. An individual can't go out and declare war. For it to be just, it had to be seeking to restore justice or preserve peace. That was a really big criteria. A just war also had to be an absolute last resort after all forms of negotiating had failed. It had to be proportional, so there had to be a minimum level of violence, and it also had to protect every civilian non-combatants as much as possible. And finally, a just war had to have a just cause. It had to defend against armed aggression to seek justice. Now, that's a really helpful guide in theory. But war is messy. And over the centuries, politicians and generals have really found it difficult to put those principles into practice. I mean, even Augustine himself, he said that any war, even if it was just, it was less than ideal. He said this, the wise man will wage just wars. Surely, however, if he remembers that he is a human being, he will grieve at being faced with the necessity of waging just wars. War should be lamented by human beings. And for Augustine, even if war was just, even if all that criteria was fulfilled, war was never holy. But unfortunately, it wasn't long before Augustine's just war principles ended up becoming hijacked. And his justification for a just war morphed into a much more militant position where Christians believed they had the rights and the responsibility to convert non-Christian peoples through force and aggression. And so that was really the motivation for the Crusades. They were officially sanctioned as holy wars. They believed they were carrying the cross of Jesus. Now, literally, the word crusade comes from the Latin word, uh, the root word crux. And in English, that is our word for cross. And so every soldier who made the vow to fight against the Muslims, they would be given a little fabric in the shape of a cross. And they would sew that onto their clothing as a symbol of their obedience to Jesus. They were literally carrying his cross on them. And many of the crusaders sincerely believed that they were doing God's work and that they would be rewarded for their efforts. So in one of the most famous speeches that incited the first crusade, 
the Christian leader at the time, Pope Urban II, he made this very bold promise. He said that all crusaders, they would receive pardon from their sins and they would uh, experience the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. That's a big, big call, big promise. But even though the crusaders believed in their cause, it's very clear that they were miles away from what Jesus taught and what he practiced and the example of those early Christians. But Jesus, he never championed violence. He never coerced or forced anyone. And when he was personally confronted with violence, Jesus condemned it. When he was betrayed and arrested by, uh, arrested by Roman soldiers, Jesus quashed the violent response of his followers. When he was unjustly tried and brutally beaten, Jesus did not retaliate. Jesus actively lived the truth that he taught, and he encouraged his followers to do the same. But as you've seen down through the centuries, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, you know? Some of those Christians, perhaps the Crusaders, they did not reflect the values and the virtues of Jesus. And that's left a really dark stain on the history of Christianity. And it's been a reminder that actually at times the church has been out of tune with Jesus. But other Christians have tried to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And in the face of aggression and hostility, they've responded with nonviolence, with, with grace and forgiveness. And, and not just those first Christians in those first two or three centuries. In the 1950s and the 1960s, Christians in America stood up for justice in a nonviolent way. And perhaps the most well-known of those Christians at that time was a man called Martin Luther King Jr., Perhaps you know a little bit about him. He was a, a Baptist pastor, a preacher, uh, and he ultimately led what became known as the Civil Rights Movement. So I'm going to show you a quick clip around some of what he did and how that made a huge difference. Jesus gave the world a new turn when it came to enemies. Relinquish violence in favour of love. Someone who truly embodied that radical teaching to great effect was a Baptist preacher from America's South. He led the fight for civil rights for African Americans from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., King delivered a piece of rhetorical brilliance that became a high point of the civil rights movement. Under the gaze of one great emancipator, he would unfold his vision of another social revolution. 250,000 people gathered here for the March on Washington, a massive rally to demand civil and economic rights for African Americans. It was late in the day, and King stepped up to the microphone and delivered his unforgettable I Have a Dream speech. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. King began his journey into the leadership of the civil rights movement here at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was thrust, reluctantly at first, into the limelight as a key leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. 
For several weeks now, we, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, have been involved in a non-violent protest against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on the buses for a number of years. This is a non-violent protest. We are depending on moral and spiritual forces using the method of passive resistance. One night when the Montgomery bus boycott had gotten started, uh, he received a uh, telephone call from someone who said that he was going to be killed, his family was going to be killed, his house was going to be bombed. You know, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, he just sat down at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and said a prayer, which basically was, Lord, I'm down here trying to do good, but I'm losing my courage. And uh, he said he heard a voice speaking to him, saying, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, stand up for what's right, stand up for justice, and I will never abandon you, I will never leave you, I'll never leave you alone, I'll never leave you alone. And for King, that kitchen table experience became for him the rock-solid basis for his activism, even though he knew uh, as his life went on and on that he was not going to die in bed. The boycott was ultimately a success. But in the middle of the struggle, King's house was firebombed, with his wife and baby daughter inside. They escaped unharmed, but the event inflamed the tempers of King's supporters. That night, an angry mob gathered at the front of the house. Imagine being part of that crowd, surrounded by men with sticks and guns and shovels, determined to exact revenge, ready for action, and watching as Martin Luther King comes out. He told them to go home. It's an extraordinary reaction. And he urged them to love their white brothers no matter what, and called on them to follow the example of Jesus and to meet hate with love. You might know some of that stuff about Martin Luther King, but a very inspirational response to injustice. When his house is firebombed, when his, his family is threatened, he's able to keep calm and show grace and trust that God is sovereign. And in his peaceful quest for justice, Martin Luther King was simply living out his Christian faith. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honourable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but it's really hard. Martin Luther King had his character smeared. He, he faced intimidation and abuse. He was arrested and imprisoned numerous times. But through all that, he responded without violence. He tried to live in peace. He did not take revenge. He left justice in the hands of God, and he overcame evil by doing good. And ultimately, King played in tune with Jesus. Martin Luther King showed the beauty and the power of being in harmony with Jesus. He played a song of grace and peace. I don't know if you have seen much of the headlines this week, 
But certainly recent events globally and nationally show that our world is pretty messy. Now, there's been antagonism, aggression, division, disintegration, wars, rumours of wars, protests, demonstrations, occupations, you know, the list goes on. I wonder if more than ever our world needs grace and peace. There's a guy called Miroslav Vov, he's a Croatian theologian and author, and he writes this, at the very heart, the Christian faith is about grace. Grace that generously gives without seeking return. Grace that forgives hurt and injury. Grace that seeks reconciliation and restoration. All of that is central to the Christian faith. When that grace is put into practice, you'll have a major contribution to a peaceful world. And maybe you've tried to show Christian peace and grace, but you know that it's not easy. But Martin Luther King and countless others show that it can be done and that it needs to be done because our world is desperate to hear the the tune of Jesus. But do you know who is responsible for playing that tune of Jesus? It's you and it's me. When our world looks at Christianity and sees that ugly hangover of the Crusades, we can show them the beauty of grace. When our world looks at Christianity and sees loathing, we can show them love. When our world looks at Christianity and sees hypocrisy, we can show honesty. When our world looks at Christianity and sees division and disintegration, we can show unity and restoration. We can share the grace and peace of Jesus, but playing his tune starts with you and it starts with me. You know, chances are in your lifetime you're not going to be a, a soldier, you're not going to have to go to war, but my guess is that every day you come up against conflict in your daily life. Maybe it's that obstinate child, maybe it's a friend who's suddenly turned septic. Maybe it's a co-worker who's a bully. Maybe it's the rowdy neighbours with their late night parties. There is conflict in your life where you can bring grace and peace to it, but it starts with you and it starts with me. In fact, actually it starts with Jesus working in you and in me. You know, 80% of the New Testament letters begin with this phrase or, or a version of this phrase. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So if you're in the midst of conflict, if you are feeling frustrated or confused, or if you simply just need strength or patience or perspective or hope, let Jesus work in you so that he can work through you. Let his love be your banner. Let his grace be your guide. Let his peace fill your heart. And may you take his peace and his grace wherever you go, to whoever you meet and whatever you do. Because the only way that the world is going to see another way to the violent hangovers of history is if Christians like you and like me play the tune of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, you know that our world is really, really messy. There's been some terrible things happen in the past and, and even on our screens today we see conflict and violence everywhere. But in the midst of this mess, we're grateful that you offer grace and peace through Jesus. And we've seen that reflected this morning in communion. We've sung about it. Jesus, in his teachings and his actions, he shows the world that there's another way to live. And so we just pray that in, in very simple ways, we can take his grace and his peace everywhere we go.
We can bring patience, we can bring perspectives in the conflicts in our relationships that we have. And that ultimately, we can play that tune of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Hey, well, thanks for joining us.